Chapter Six of the Invasion by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Six: How the Enemy Dealt the Blow. Meanwhile, at the regimental depots, feverish excitement prevailed on Wednesday, September fifth. Now that every man was ordered on active service, all officers and men who had been on leave were recalled and medical inspection of all ranks at once commenced. Rations and bedding, stores and equipment were drawn, but there was a great lack of uniforms. Unlike the German army, where every soldier's equipment is complete even to the last button on the proverbial gaiter, and stowed away where the owner knows where to obtain it, our officers commanding depots commenced indenting for clothing on the Royal Army Clothing Department and the Army Corps Clothing Department. A large percentage of men were, of course, found medically unfit to serve, and were discharged to swell the mob of hungry idlers. The plain clothes of the reservists coming in were disposed of, no man daring to appear in the ranks unless in uniform. Von Kronhelm's proclamation having forbidden the tactics of the Boers of putting mere armed citizens into the field, horse-collecting parties went out all over the country, taking with them head collars, head ropes, bits, reins, surcingles, nubnas, horse blankets, and nose bags. These scoured every county in search of likely animals, every farm, every livery stable, every hunting box, all hound kennels and private stables were visited, and a choice made. All this, however, took time. Precious hours were thus being wasted while the enemy were calmly completing their arrangements for the long-contemplated blow at the heart of the British Empire. While the War Office refused any information, special editions of the papers during Wednesday printed sensational reports of the ruthless completion of the impenetrable screen covering the operations of the enemy on the whole of the East Coast. News had, by some means, filtered through from Yarmouth that a similar landing to those at Lowestoft and Weybourne had been effected. Protected as such an operation was by its flanks being supported by the Fourth and Ninth Army Corps landing on either side, the Tenth Army Corps, under General von Vilberg, had seized Yarmouth, with its many miles of wharves and docks, which were now crowded by the lighter's craft of flotilla from the Frisian Islands. It was known that the landing had been effected simultaneously with that at Lowestoft. The large number of cranes at the fish docks were of invaluable use to the enemy, for there they landed guns, animals, and stores, while the provisions they found at the various ships' chandlers and in such shops as Blagg's, and the international stores in King Street, Peter Brown's, Doughty's, Lipton's, Penny's, and Barnes were at once commandeered. Great stores of flour were seized in Clark's and Press's mills, while the horse provender mills in the vicinity supplied them with valuable forage. Beyond these few details, as far as regarded the fate of Yarmouth, nothing further was at present known. The British division at Colchester, which comprised all the regular troops north of the Thames in the Eastern Command, was, no doubt, in a critical position, threatened so closely north and south by the enemy none of the regiments, the Norfolks, the Leicestershire, and the King's own Scottish borderers of the 11th Infantry Brigade were up to their strength. The 12th Infantry Brigade, which also belonged to the division, possessed only skeleton regiments stationed at Hounslow and Worley. 
of the fourth cavalry brigade some were at norwich the twenty-first lancers were at hounslow while only the sixteenth lancers were at colchester other cavalry regiments were as far away as canterbury shorncliffe and brighton and although there were three batteries of artillery at colchester some were at ipswich others at shorncliffe and others at woolwich therefore it was quite evident to the authorities in london that unless both colchester and norwich were instantly strongly supported they would soon be simply swept out of existence by the enormous masses of german troops now dominating the whole eastern coast bent upon occupying london helpless though they felt themselves to be the garrison at colchester did all they could all available cavalry had been pushed out past ipswich north to wickham market stowmarket and across to bury st edmunds only to find on wednesday morning that they were covering the hasty retreat of the small body of cavalry who had been stationed at norwich they gallantly led by their officers had done everything possible to reconnoitre and attempt to pierce the enemy's huge cavalry screen but in every instance entirely in vain they had been outnumbered by the squadrons of independent cavalry operating in front of the germans and had at last left numbers of their gallant comrades upon the roads killed and wounded norwich had therefore on wednesday morning fallen into the hands of the german cavalry utterly defenceless from the castle the german flag was now flying the britannia barracks were being used by the enemy food had all been seized the streets were in a state of chaos and a complete reign of terror had been created when a company of british infantry having fired at some uhlans were ruthlessly shot down in the street close by the maid's head in addition to this the mayor of norwich was taken prisoner lodged in the castle and held as surety for the well-behaviour of the town everywhere von kronhelm's famous proclamation was posted and as the invaders poured into the city the inhabitants looked on in sullen silence knowing that they were now under german military discipline the most rigorous and drastic in the whole world a special issue of the times in the evening of the third september contained the following vivid account the first published of the happenings in the town of ghoul in yorkshire ghoul september third shortly before five o'clock on sunday morning the night operator of the telephone call office here discovered an interruption on the trunk line and on trying the telegraphs was surprised to find that there was no communication in any direction the railway station being rung up replied that their wires were also down almost immediately afterwards a well-known north sea pilot rushed into the post office and breathlessly asked that he might telephone to lloyd's when told that all communication was cut off he wildly shouted that a most extraordinary sight was to be seen in the river ooze up which was approaching a continuous procession of tugs towing flats and barges filled with german soldiers this was proved to be an actual fact and the inhabitants of ghoul awakened from their sunday morning slumbers by the shouts of alarm in the streets found to their abject amazement foreign soldiers swarming everywhere on the quay they found activity everywhere german being spoken on all hands they watched a body of cavalry consisting of the first westphalian hussars the westphalian cuissiers 
land with order and ease at the Victoria Pier, whence, after being formed up on the quay, they advanced at a sharp trot up Victoria Street, Ouse Street, and North Street to the railway stations, where, as is generally known, there are large sidings of the Northeast Lancashire and Yorkshire lines in direct communication both with London and the great cities of the North. The enemy here found great quantities of engines and rolling stock, all of which were at once seized, together with huge stacks of coal at the new sidings. Before long the first of the infantry of the 13th Division, which was commanded by Lieutenant General Dupschultz, marched up to the stations. They consisted of the 13th and 56th Westphalian regiments, and the cavalry on being relieved advanced out of the town, crossing the Dutch River by the railway bridge, and pushed on as far as Thorn and Hensall, near which they at once strongly held the several important railway junctions. Meanwhile, cavalry of the 14th Brigade, consisting of Westphalian Hussars and Uhlans, were rapidly disembarking at Old Ghoul, and, advancing southwards over the open country of Ghoul Moors and Thorn Waste, occupied Kroll. Both cavalry brigades were acting independently of the main body, and by their vigorous action both south and west they were entirely screening what was happening in the port of Ghoul. City of Norwich. Citizens. As is well known, a hostile army has landed upon the coast of Norfolk, and has already occupied Yarmouth and Lowestoft, establishing their headquarters at Beckles. In these grave circumstances our only thought is for England, and our duty as citizens and officials is to remain at our post and bear our part in the defense of Norwich, our capital now threatened. Your patriotism, of which you have on so many occasions in recent wars given proof, will, I have no doubt, again be shown. By your resistance you will obtain the honor and respect of your enemies, and by the individual energy of each one of you the honor and glory of England may be saved. Citizens of Norwich, I appeal to you to view the catastrophe calmly, and bear your part bravely in the coming struggle. Charles Carrington, Mayor, Norwich, September 4th, 1910 Infantry continued to pour into the town from flats and barges, arriving in endless procession. Dopschultz's division landed at Alden Dock, Railway Dock, and Ship Dock. The 14th Division at the Jetty and Basin, also in the Barge Dock, and at the mouth of the Dutch River, while some, following the Cavalry Brigade, landed at Old Ghoul and Swinefleet. As far as can be ascertained, the whole of the Seventh German Army Corps have landed, at any rate as far as the men are concerned. The troops who are under the supreme command of General Baron von Bistrom appear to consist almost entirely of Westphalians, and include Prince Frederick of the Netherlands' Second Westphalians, Count Bula von Danowitz's Sixth Westphalians, but one infantry brigade, the Seventy-Ninth, consisted of men from Lorraine. Through the whole day the disembarkation proceeded, the townsmen standing there helpless to lift a finger and watching the enemy's arrival. The Victoria Pleasure Grounds were occupied by parked artillery, which towards afternoon began to rumble through the streets. The German gunners with folded arms sat unconcernedly upon the ammunition boxes as the guns were drawn up to their positions. Horses were seized wherever found, the proclamation of von Kronhelm was nailed upon the church doors, and the terrified populace read the grim threat 
of the German field marshal. The wagons, of which there were hundreds, were put ashore mostly at Goole, but others up the river at Hook and Swinefleet. When the cavalry advance was complete, as it was soon after midday, and reports had come in to von Bistram that the country was clear of the British, the German infantry advance began. By nightfall they had pushed forward, some by road, some by rail, and others in the numerous motor-wagons that had accompanied the force, until March outposts were established south of Thorn, Askern, and Kroll straddling the main road at Bawtry. These places, including Fish Lake and the country between them, were at once strongly held, while ammunition and stores were pushed up by railway to both Thorn and Askern. The independent cavalry advance continued to Doncaster until dusk, when Rotherham was reached, during which advance scattered bodies of British imperial yeomanry were met and compelled to retreat, a dozen or so lives being lost. It appears that late in the afternoon of Sunday news was brought into Sheffield of what was in progress, and a squadron of yeomanry donned their uniforms and rode forward to reconnoitre, with the disastrous results already mentioned. The sensation caused in Sheffield when it became known that German cavalry was so close as Rotherham was enormous, and the scenes in the streets soon approached a panic, for it was widely declared that that night the enemy intended to occupy the town. The mayor telegraphed to the war office, appealing for additional defensive force, but no response was received to the telegram. The small force of military in the town which consisted of the 2nd Battalion Yorkshire Light Infantry, some Royal Artillery, and the local volunteers, were soon assembled, and going out occupied the strong position above Sheffield between Catcliffe and Tinsley, overlooking the valley of the Rother to the east. The expectation that the Germans intended an immediate descent on Sheffield was not realized, because the German tactics were merely to reconnoitre and report on the defences of Sheffield if any existed. This they did by remaining to the eastward of the river Rother, whence the high ground rising before Sheffield could be easily observed. Before dusk one or two squadrons of cruisers were seen to be examining the river to find ford and ascertain the capacity of the bridges, while others appeared to be comparing the natural features of the ground with the maps with which they all appeared to be provided. As night fell, however, the cavalry retired towards Doncaster, which town was occupied, the Angel being the cavalry headquarters. The reason the Germans could not advance at once upon Sheffield was that the cavalry was not strongly supported by infantry from their base, the distance from Goole being too great to be covered in a single day. That the arrangements for landing were in every detail perfect could not be doubted, but owing to the narrow channel of the Ouse time was necessary, and it is considered probable that fully three days must elapse from Sunday before the Germans are absolutely established. An attempt has been made by the Yorkshire Light Infantry and the York and Lancaster Regiment, with three battalions of volunteers stationed at Pontefract, to discover the enemy's strength and position between Askern and Snaith, but so far without avail, the cavalry screen across the whole country being impenetrable. God save the King. Proclamation. To all whom it may concern. In regard to the decree of September 3rd of the present year, declaring a state of siege in the counties of Norfolk and Suffolk, 
in regard to the decree of august tenth nineteen o six regulating the public administration of all theatres of war and military servitude upon the proposition of the commander-in-chief it is decreed as follows one there are in a state of war first in the eastern command the counties of northamptonshire rutlandshire cambridgeshire norfolk suffolk essex huntingdonshire bedfordshire hertfordshire and middlesex except that portion included in the london military district second in the northern command the counties of northumberland durham cumberland and yorkshire with the southern shore of the estuary of the humber two i charles letter spencer cotterell his majesty's principal secretary of state for war am charged with the execution of this decree war office whitehall september the fourth nineteen ten the people of the west riding and especially the inhabitants of sheffield are stupefied that they have received no assistance not even a reply to the mayor's telegram this fact has leaked out and has caused the greatest dissatisfaction an enemy is upon us yet we are in ignorance of what step if any the authorities are taking for our protection there are wild rumors here that the enemy have burned grimsby but these are generally discredited for telegraphic and telephonic communication has been cut off and at present we are completely isolated it has been gathered from the invaders that the eighth army corps of the germans have landed and seized hull but at present this is not confirmed there is at last no communication with the place therefore the report may possibly be true dewsbury huddersfield wakefield and selby are all intensely excited over the sudden appearance of german soldiers and were at first inclined to unite to stem their progress but the german proclamation showing the individual peril of any citizen taking arms against the invaders having been posted everywhere has held everyone scared and in silent inactivity where is our army everyone is asking the whole country has run riot in a single hour now that the germans are upon us on every hand it is asked what will london do reports now reached london that the eighth german army corps have landed at hall and ghoul and taking possession of these towns were moving upon sheffield in order to paralyze our trade in the midlands hull had been bombarded and was in flames terrible scenes were taking place at that port on that memorable sunday when a descent had been made upon our shores there were in german ports on the north sea nearly a million tons gross of german shipping normally in peacetime half a million tons is always to be found there the second half having been quietly collected by ships putting in unobserved into such ports as emden bremen bremerhaven and gistamunda where there are at least ten miles of deep-sea wharves with ample railway access the arrival of these crafts caused no particular comment but they had already been secretly prepared for the transport of men and horses while at sea under the cover of the frisian islands from every canal river and creek had been assembled a huge multitude of flats and barges ready to be towed by tugs alongside the wharves and filled with troops of a sudden in a single hour it seemed hamburg altona cuxhaven and wilhelmshaven were in excited activity 
and almost before the inhabitants themselves realized what was really in progress, the embarkation had well commenced. At Emden, with its direct cable to the theatre of war in England, was concentrated the brain of the whole movement. Beneath the lee of the covering screen of Frisian Islands, Borkum, Just, Norderday, Langebog, and the others, the preparations for the descent upon England rapidly matured. Troop trains from every part of the fatherland arrived with the punctuality of clockwork. From Dusseldorf came the Seventh Army Corps, the Eighth from Koblenz, the Ninth were already assembled at their headquarters at Altona, while many of them being stationed at Bremen embarked from there. The Tenth came up from Hanover, the Fourteenth from Magdeburg, and the Corps of German Guards, the pride and flower of the Kaiser's troops, arrived eagerly at Hamburg from Berlin and Potsdam, among the first to embark. Each army corps consisted of about 38,000 officers and men, 11,000 horses, 144 guns, and about 2,000 motor-cars, wagons, and carts. But for this campaign, which was more of the nature of a raid than of any protracted campaign, the supply of wheeled transport, with the exception of motor-cars, had been somewhat reduced. Each cavalry brigade attached to an army corps consisted of 1,400 horses and men, with some 35 light machine-guns and wagons. The German calculation, which proved pretty correct, was that each army corps could come over to England in 100,000 tons gross of shipping, bringing with them supplies for 27 days in another 3,000 tons gross. Therefore about 618,000 tons gross conveyed the whole of the Sixth Corps, leaving an ample margin still in German ports for any emergencies. Half this tonnage consisted of about 100 steamers, averaging 3,000 tons each, the remainder being the boats, flats, lighters, barges, and tugs previously alluded to. The Saxons, who, disregarding the neutrality of Belgium, had embarked at Antwerp, had seized the whole of the flat-bottomed craft in the Scheldt and the numerous canals, as well as the merchant ships in the port, finding no difficulty in commandeering the amount of tonnage necessary to convey them to the Blackwater and the Crouch. As hour succeeded hour, the panic increased. It was now also known that, in addition to the various corps who had effected a landing, the German guards had, by a sudden swoop into the wash, got ashore at King's Lynn, seized the town, and united their forces with von Kleppen's corps, who, having landed at Weybourne, were now spread right across Norfolk. This picked corps of guards was under the command of that distinguished officer, the Duke of Mannheim, while the infantry divisions were under lieutenant-generals von Kastin and von der Decken. The landing at King's Lynn on Sunday morning had been quite a simple affair. There was nothing whatever to repel them, and they disembarked on the quays and in the docks, watched by the astonished populace. All provisions were seized at shops, while headquarters were established at the municipal buildings, and the German flag hoisted upon the old church, the tower of which was at once used as a signal station. Old-fashioned people of Lynn peered out of their quiet respectable houses in King Street in utter amazement, but soon, when the German proclamation was posted, the terrible truth was plain. In half an hour, even before they could realize it, they had been transferred from the protection of the British flag 
to the militarism of the German. Ere sundown on Sunday, stalwart grey-coated sentries of the guards fusiliers from Potsdam and the grenadiers from Berlin were holding the roads at Gayton, East Walton, Narborough, Markham, Fincham, Strasstedt, and Stowe Bardolph. Therefore, on Sunday night, from Spalding on the east, Peterborough, Chatteris, Littleport, Thetford, Dith, and Halesworth were faced by a huge cavalry screen protecting the landing and repose of the great German army behind it. Slowly but carefully, the enemy were maturing their plans for the defeat of our defenders and the sack of London. End of chapter six. Recording by Tom Weiss. Tom's Audiobooks dot com.